And I, I look at the contents of the thing. And I see people taking care of me. Amen. There are Kleenexes. <laughs> Mint ministry. Water. Thank you for your care. Someone came up to me this week and said, uh, you've been on my heart and I've been praying for you. And just with the earnestness with which it was stated, I knew that God was moving. It took about 12 hours, maybe not quite that long, but I found out what it was. And I covet your prayers. God is on his throne. He has not lost control. We are not spinning out into the nether reaches of the universe without his care. He is watching over our lives, our hearts, our families. Even when we are resistant to the outcomes he desires. Maybe especially then. This morning, I want to continue our conversation on the general subject of a God-directed life. A God-directed life is a choice. Much of the time, we don't think about it. We just wander along as if We're okay out there in the universe where we live. As if everything's fine, it's cool, no problem, no sweat. Every once in a while, for whatever reason, Satan gives you one of these. Bam! And you're suddenly aware you are probably not up to the task. I hear, I hear laughter because it's true and you know it. As soon as you are old enough to understand that you are a follower of Jesus, you begin to feel the pressure against that decision. I talked to a couple of folks today who said, man, it's been a tough week. I know that's not true for all of you, but we praise God, we're not all going through the same bummer all at the same time, right? Amen. When you're not going through a bummer, pray for those who are, because somebody is. And when you are going through a bummer, say, Lord, I know I have companions. But understand... In that moment of weakness, that's when strength is there. Because we stop trying to do it ourselves. The Apostle Paul said, I have been given a great gift. I have seen many things. God has revealed great things to me. And if you've read Paul's books, you see the depth of his understanding is amazing. You have to read slowly. It's like reading Stephen Hawking. You have to read slowly because it's way over your head. 
Paul said, God has given me such great revelation that he has also allowed me to have a thorn in my flesh. And I prayed three times, please take this away from me. And God said, it's okay. My grace is sufficient for you. In your weakness, my power shows itself. You know why? Because we stop trying to drive our own bus. And we get out of the seat and say, I've never really been able to reach the pedals. I don't understand where I'm going. The road's very confusing to me, so I'm just going to let you drive. That's where Israel find themselves in today's picture. Choosing God's direction against their disappointment. Choosing God's direction against their disappointment. This morning I just want to draw your attention to this text in Isaiah chapter 41. We're going to come back to Isaiah's commentary here, but I just want you to... to, to to see this text. I want you to understand the context of it. In chapter 39, you have the visitation of the Babylonians to Hezekiah. In the previous chapters, 37, 36, 38, you have the chapters revealing that Sennacherib has been surrounding the city and horrible things have been threatened and God has intervened for Israel. And when Hezekiah invites Babylon to come and look at his treasures instead of look at his God, God says through the prophet Isaiah to him, Dummy! They're coming back! And they're taking all your stuff. And your kids. Good job. Roughly what chapter 39 says. In the official Walt Groff paraphrase. Chapters 40 and 41, God says to Isaiah, encourage the people. And there's a long poem. I think it actually should be one poem. And this particular passage down into 41 halfway or so he says to them for i am the lord who takes hold of your right hand and says to you do not fear i will help you in our weakness that's why we are made strong and paul goes on to say In 2 Corinthians 12, so I treasure weakness and infirmity and struggle because that's when I turn to God. Still true today, isn't it? We are in the book of Ezra, if you want to find it in your Bible. I'm not going to tell you where it is today. Just look for it. It's there. If you have to, there's a table of contents. But I want to give you a little background as we go. Um, 605 B.C., Jerusalem falls for the first time in history to, uh, to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel is hauled off to Babylon. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy in chapter 39 of Isaiah. They're coming, they're taking all your stuff, and this is how it all begins. They come, they take the stuff, they take the people, and they start. It takes them three more times, Israel in rebellion against God, resisting God's will for them when he tells them just just stop fighting them. Stop looking for the Egyptians for help. I'm your only help. 
You're weak. I've demonstrated your weakness. Now turn to me. Recognize I am the power in your life that you need. They don't. They start looking for allies to fight off the Babylonians. They can't. And so the Babylonians come back and they come back a third time. In 586, Jerusalem is leveled. The temple is burned to the ground. And they're all scooted out of there. Jerusalem is left desolate and empty in 586. 538. A man named Cyrus comes and he attacks Babylon and wins. Also fulfilling prophecy in the book of Isaiah. If you are not certain about your, the, the, the fundamental, fundamental trust you might have in Scripture, just look at the prophecies. There is no way Isaiah names this guy, this guy 50, 60 years, 150 years before he's born on his own. Cyrus comes, called out by God by name, and he captures Babylon and takes it over in 538. And he makes a decree that all Israel may return and rebuild the temple. Here we are in the verse, first, very first chapter, first verse of Ezra. Now in the first year of Cyrus the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might, uh, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. By the way, Jeremiah had predicted that they would be 70 years in captivity, that the word of the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. I skipped some things. That's what the ellipses mean. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given to me. Remember, this is a pagan Persian king. This is not an Israeli. This is not a Jew. This is a pagan, pagan, pagan king. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem. Go home, you guys. He goes on to say, rebuild your temple and pray for me. Fourteen months later, I feel like one of those moments in a movie where they set you up with a scene and then there's that, that, that little title line that says, 14 months later. Fourteen months later, in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem. So stop and stop and remember, this is the second month of the second year of their after they return. So they didn't get right on building the temple, right? They didn't get right at it. They didn't say, okay, God sent us home to build the temple. Let's go with that. Let's start with that. Let's do this thing. They wait. Fourteen months after they get back. 14 months into their, their arrival. So what do you think they did for those 14 months? What would you do? Are you going to live in a cave? No, nope, probably not. Are you permanently going to live in a tent? No, probably not. So what do you think they did? They started finding a place to live. Maybe they went to the old ranch house to see how it, see how it was going. Restructure, rebuild, try to get things established. They started planting vineyards and gardens and fruit trees and try to establish food for themselves and take care of their family. So they went back and took care of their basic needs. And 14 months into this, they start in to the, the building of the house. Zerubbabel, who's just got one of the best names in the whole Bible, Zerubbabel. It sounds like something that's going on when you put soap in the tub and turn on the water. Zerubbabel. I'm having a Zerubbabel bath. Zerubbabel and Yeshua, get this name, get this name. When Israel enters into the promised land, you know what the name of the guy who leads the crowd is? Yeshua. We call him Joshua, but that's the name. Yeshua. 
When Israel goes off to Babylon and they need to go back, who does God choose to be the priest? They go back to be led by a guy named Yeshua. When it was time for Mary to name the baby, when God spoke to, 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 uh, to Mary and what, Joseph, he said to them, you're going to call the name of your child Yeshua. And we're sitting here in our 2,000 year wait, looking up to the heavens in the expectation of Yeshua. Is this accidental? I don't think so. God doesn't fool around. He's trying to show us things. And he's trying to demonstrate things to us. Be aware of stuff like this in the Bible. It's just cool. And it's faith building and strengthening and encouraging. And you can remember some little silly thing like, hey, they're all named Yeshua. Sometime when you're kind of dragging, your, your belly's kind of dragging, you're feeling kind of sad. And you just remember, that's who I'm waiting for is Yeshua. It's been Yeshua and Yeshua and Yeshua. And here comes the fourth of them. Look up into the heavens and say, it's Jesus. It's Yeshua who's taking us to the final promised land. Oops, sorry. And all those who had come out of captivity in Jerusalem began to work. Days of joy. They start work. I can remember, there's a, there's a picture of the first day of work on this piece of property. They let me play with the backhoe. Now, I thought, this can't be that hard. It's really hard. I would like to do it a lot more. I'd like to have a backhoe of my own. Wouldn't, guys, ladies, raise your hand if you'd love to have your own backhoe. See? I'm not the only one. I would, and then I want, you know, I can't do it in my backyard, so I gotta have enough room to, to play with it for a while, cause it's gonna take a while, right? I'm, I've, I've seen a good backhoe operator, and I've seen what I did. Nothing close to the same thing. But there's a picture. There's a picture. Right over there. In February of 2002, me sitting in a backhoe. You know what they let me finally do? Cause I couldn't do anything else. They put the backhoe shovel right next to the big banner that was the date and they let me break the banner because that was the only thing I was safe and qualified to do. That was a day of celebration. It was a day of great joy because we had waited for a long time for that day. We had saved and and prayed and looked for opportunities and looked for land. We, We were waiting for this moment. We had been renting for long enough and we were finally getting started on a place of our own. It was awesome day. It was a great day of celebration. That when the builders laid the foundations of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals and the, to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David the king. David told him, you should do this. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. They sang antiphonally. This is, if you go into the Psalms, this is actually a repeating theme. In, in fact, the Psalm read at Passover just does this over and over and over and over again. It's just this constant, here's what God did, his mercy endures forever. Look at what God did over here, his mercy endures forever. And then there was this, his mercy endures forever. Telling the story of Israel, reminding them of their history, and reminding them that it's always been God. That's what happens as, they, as they're laying the foundation, the celebration of that day. For he is good and his mercy endures 
forever toward Israel. I think one of the things we should probably do is the day they start digging the foundation here, we should gather out there and we should repeat that psalm antiphonally because we know that it is still the same God. Amen. Same one from then to now. And as we move forward, he will go forward with this. He said, David said, repeat this. Repeat that he is good for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. God's mercy endures all the way through. All the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundations of the house of the Lord were laid. So they laid out the foundation. The people gathered round and they just, they just began to shout. They began to, to shout with joy. They just, you know, think baseball game. Think home run in the ninth inning, two outs, two strikes, two guys on. Boom! Out it goes over the wall. People stand up. They start shouting and cheering as the home run hitter jogs around the bases and your team wins! Foundations of the Lord's house are laid. The people of Israel are looking at the foundations of the house and saying, our team wins! Home from Babylon, overcomers of all the mess we found ourselves in, overcomers of all the destruction our family has built for centuries on their idolatry. Here we stand, reestablishing the worship of God. We win! We do not do that enough in church. We go to baseball games and basketball games. I, I can sit in my living room, the Raiders score a touchdown. It's like, yes! I'm not even close to where they are. They can't hear me. My neighbors might be able to hear me. When Spencer was in utero, he used to do backflips when the Raiders got a touchdown because his mother and I went, yes! And Spencer went, yes! What are we yelling about? Somebody explain to me. We didn't have a TV, so it was all over the radio. Wow, what if church were like that? Now, what if we ever got to the place where we felt comfortable enough with how awesome God is to really just in the middle of a church service, somebody stand up and go, we win! You know what happened, right? You go, we win! And, everybody, and then you'd be doing this. Because nobody else is standing there with you. You're like, oh, oh, sorry. That'd be the last time you ever did it, Right? That's what happens to us. We get real excited about something God's doing. We get real excited. Like, oh man, I want to. Oh, nobody else is standing up. Okay. Why was the wave invented at a baseball game and not at church? We win! <laughs> a plant! I didn't tell her to do that. <laughs> See, think about it. The, the foundations of the temple are laid. The promise of that is phenomenal. The kingdom of God has its place. It's, it's, it's land staked out. It's 
building is beginning. There's a statement being made. The place of God on earth is being reestablished. It's sitting right here on the intersection of the two major freeways. Here we are. We're building this place. It's going to honor God. People are going to come here. They're going to learn to follow and love and trust God. Awesome. Joy. They shout and they shout loudly. I mean, it is really loud. The Bible describes it as extremely loud. And then... You know, when the last group was hauled away, it's only about 50 years ago. And so there are some 65-year-olds. You know, there are some 60-year-olds. I was trying to think of when you would stop remembering how cool the temple had been. And I, I remember that when our youngest son, <clears throat> when we came to Rockland, our youngest son was between four and five. <clears throat> he was four, almost five. And I asked him about the church where we used to be regularly. I said, oh, yeah, we did this when we were in, in Cloverdale. Do you, remember, do you remember that? No. Do you, do you remember we did, we, this was happening? No. So somewhere in there, somewhere in that age group, those people that maybe at 65 and under, they didn't, they didn't remember the temple. They, they couldn't remember what it was like before. This, this was so cool to them. They're, they're in the we win side of the argument. They're saying, yes, God, this is amazing. We have the promise of victory in the end. We have a God who will see us through, who will take us by our right hand and walk us all the way home. How cool is that? And then there's the other side. Many of the priests and the Levites and heads of the father's households, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice. So here's one half of the crowd shouting and praising God, we win! And here's the other half of the crowd going, this is horrible. Look at this dinky little building we're building. This is nothing. This isn't even honorable to God. Do you remember what the old temple looked like? Do you remember how awesome Solomon's temple was? And we're building this little hut for God. Come on, we can do better. We have to do better. And it's just weeping and there's two crowds. There's, we win and oh no, and we win and oh no. It's so loud and so cacophonous that no one can tell who's weeping and who's shouting for joy. Isn't it amazing that when some of you were kind of doing the wave today and raising your hands and praising God, some of the rest of us were like, not today, man. This is not the day of joy in my life. This is not for me. I I want to make one, one, I should have had a tie-on comment, okay? As I've gotten older, I've gotten grumpier. You know, they used to talk about grumpy old men. Max. Well, the shoe fits, buddy. One of the things we need to be careful about when we are older is stomping on the dreams of the young. We have this whole thing where we think we have to do reality checks for young people. Give them a break. Honesty, yes. No. We don't need to grind their hopes. We need to give hope. We need to encourage. We need to look at them and say, hey, guys... Wow, I wouldn't have tried that, but 
you know, with a little bit of shaping, that might work out for you. You know, just think about this might help and that might help. And instead of saying bad idea, really bad idea, what are you thinking? Maybe, maybe if we could sort of help guide the idea to, to fit into a more, a, a more real sort of perspective on life. Cause you have, you have long, long extended decades of looking at the world and you kind of, you kind of know what, what, what potholes are ahead of them. Don't let your fear of their potholes kill their dream. Just help them see where the potholes are. Be of assistant to somebody who wants to try for the moon. Who knows they might make it. Hey, you know what I want to do? I want to start a service that you can go on your computer, type in a word, and all of the places where that occurs in the whole universe of computers is available to you in seconds. Boom! You know what the first guy who heard that said? Bad idea. That's impossible. That's crazy. You know how long it would take to just get any of that information? Do you know we put these little cards in a computer and it goes... And you know all of that does small math algebraic equations? What you're talking about is impossible. Never happened. Impossible. And yet, I can type into my computer almost anything and get 20 million stinking hits on it. Everywhere across the universe, the worlds of the internet, there it is. Just because it's impossible doesn't mean it's not possible. One of the struggles here is that these folks are not... They're not just killjoys. They're realists. And they're disappointed. They're disappointed in, in, in what they've produced. They've gone out to the building site where the new temple's being built and look out at this, this puny little thing and go, oh man, is this all we got? Is this really the best we can do? And we're sent back here to, to build a temple to the Lord God Almighty. We, we, the older generation, caused the last one to be destroyed because of our, our disobedience and our idolatry. And this is now going to replace it. They're disappointed. They're upset with themselves. They're upset with what's going on. They're upset with these crazy 25-year-olds who are all excited about this teeny, teeny little building they're building. It's the tiny house of God movement. And they wept with a loud voice. And if this is, a, if this is typical of this time period, you weep and you grab dust and you throw it in the air so that it settles on your head. You smear it on your face so everyone could know. This is a tragedy as you see it. They're deeply disappointed. One of the things about disappointment is it's, it's not here. It's here. You feel disappointment right in your chest. You feel it where your, your heart feels like it's sort of, sort of callousing, right? It, it just feels like it's struggling to beat because there's such a weight of disappointment on you. And it brings these old gentlemen to tears. 
just to see the building. The young guys who've never seen what was there before are excited and joyful and praising God. And the old guys who've seen the glory of God as it was before are heartbroken. Heartbroken for the circumstances. Heartbroken for their part in it. Heartbroken for the reality of today. Heartbroken. The thing about disappointment is it can defeat joy. Right? Bottom of the ninth. Two outs. Two strikes. Your opponent up to bat. Two guys on. Your best reliever on the mound. An L.A. Dodger limps his way up to the plate. Debbie Ashlock, you know what I'm talking about. You got Dennis Eckersley. He ain't got a chance. Your team hit a grand slam in the first inning. This game has been over. It's just been about marking it in the books. And now they're so desperate, those Dodger guys, that they got Kirk Gibson up here. Spit on him. Drags himself up there. And he puts it over the fence. And the joy of half the crowd has just been defeated in disappointment for what has just happened. Disappointment can defeat joy. Don't kill the joy of the rest of the crowd because of your disappointment. Disappointment can defeat joy. Disappointment can cause you to complain. I just did it. I just demonstrated it for you. I can remember watching that ball, watching that event, watching that moment in history, and it still kind of gives me a little pain. I'm not celebrating with the Dodgers fan. Oh, good for you guys. No way. I'm still kind of bitter about it. And I can complain about the decision, and I complain about the pitch, and I can complain about a lot of things. I get, get me together with some A's fans, and we can complain about this day, this moment in history for a long time. Remember that you can, you can feel your disappointment and begin to, begin to complain and begin to whine until that becomes your habit. And you're just a complainer and a whiner. And every time you walk into to somebody's house and they say, who, man, who invited her for dinner? We know what's going to happen. She's going to start whining about, name the topic. And that's all we're going to talk about for the rest of the time. It can lead to blame. It drives blame. It drives blame. Come on. Why did Eckersley throw the most predictable pitch in the world to, of all people, Gibson? Why? Why did our forefathers commit such heinous adultery and sinful things that the God of heaven said to them, you're out? 
You're gone off to Babylon with you. Why did they do that? Why were they such awful people? Why did they cause such terrible things? Here I have to face this moment of this, this tiny little, little house of God when we had that spectacular place. Why did they resist? Why did they continue to go after Egypt instead of God until Nebuchadnezzar and the, and the Babylonians felt like they had to wipe Jerusalem off the map and burn down our temple? Why? 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 And you begin to blame and you begin to aim at other people. You may aim it at yourself too. When you start blaming yourself, where do you go with that? Why wasn't I there? Why didn't I say this? Why didn't I do that? Why did I mess that up? Why did they do this? Why did they do that? Why did they mess that up? Disappointment, because it's such a deep-seated thing, drives blame. Most of the time, we can't just blame ourselves. Boy, if you're, if you're in that cycle of blaming yourself right now, you are headed for depression. You need to get out of that. You need to recognize there is a God in heaven. And no cycle of destruction or pain needs to continue tomorrow. Because this kind of self-destructive blame will lead you into just craziness. It will drive you absolutely sideways. If you're in the blame game where you're pointing at somebody and you know they have a good reason for you to be pointing at them, stop. Because that's just going to lead to anger and it's going to lead to a, to a place where hatred fills in where anger was, which has filled in where blame was. And now you're in this position where you're in a cycle of pain and hatred. But you have to stop. You have to stop it with forgiveness. It's the same antidote for you. You have to recognize the God of heaven offers you forgiveness for the stupidity of your own choices. And he offers them forgiveness for the stupidity of theirs. You have to. This will control your life if you let it. You will become the angry old woman or the angry old man that you've been trying not to be if you let disappointment produce it in you. Go to God with it. Let it go. Remember Adam and Eve's story? They sin. Their choice. They try to hide it and deal with it themselves. God shows up and says, Hey, how are you guys doing? Well, I was doing really good. I was cruising around. I was enjoying the garden and all the animals. And it's a beautiful place you made. But then you brought her. What were you thinking? That was not a good idea. Yeah, she's pretty and kind of distracting, but man, she's messed it all up for us here. It was going good till she showed up. And she goes, hey, 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 wait, wait, don't point at me. I was innocently going about my business, walking through the garden. I wasn't even planning to go to that tree. And as I'm walking by, a snake talked to me. Tell me you wouldn't stop. He starts whispering stuff in my ears, and I'm like, wow, there's a snake. It must be real, because it's a snake talking to me. Snakes don't talk, so this is pretty cool. You know, if a snake is talking, he's smart enough to talk. He must be wise enough to tell me what to do. I'm taking advice from a snake now, and it's your fault, because you let him talk. This blame game and this anger trail 
points, 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 and eventually points. And you will lose your relationship with God over it if you don't let it go. He is the solution, not the problem. They start building the temple. Things started going okay, and their frenemies show up. It's a real word. You can look it up in the, in the internet. Good idea somebody had. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord, God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers of the house and said, Let us build with you. Sounds like a good offer, doesn't it? We've been worshiping the same God since, since we were sent here by, by Sennacherib. Since we were sent here, we were, we were forced to leave our homes and come here. And this, since this is the land of that God, we decided to worship that God who's the God of this land. So, you know, we're worshiping the same God. Let us in. And they said, no, 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 no. Sorry, we were sent here by Cyrus to build the temple to God. And that's what we're going to do. Sorry, thank you, for your, thank you for your willingness to help. But this is our deal. And the colors of their frenemies are shown pretty quickly. Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4. And the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. Ever been in the midst of something? You're trying to do, you're trying to accomplish, and the voices of discouragement start? They start working their way into your mind? That it'll never happen? It's, you know, it's, it's Winnie the Pooh's friend. It'll never work. The people of the land began to scourge the people of Judah and they troubled them in building and they hired counselors against them. Read lawyers. It's not what the text says, but it's the modern version. They sued them. To frustrate them in their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, about a decade, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, another decade for Cambyses, his son, so this is going on for a couple of decades that the people around them are, are conf- in conflict trying to stop the building of the temple. The reality is when you're on the errands of God, the devil doesn't stop trying to stop you. Simple as that. Just reality. Cyrus 538-30. to Cambyses 522. Darius 522 on until past the building of the temple in five. 15. So they start the temple up there about 536, and it's 515, a couple of decades to get this building built. While the enemies of the people are trying to discourage them, they're writing letters back to the king to try to get him to stop them. It takes a new political reign. During the reign of Cambyses, they stop it, and it takes a new king for Israel to get back to their power, get back to the ability to build the temple. Could you wait 20 years for your dream? Could you wait 20 years while opposition roared against you, while people who claimed to be your friends were now opposing you? Could you wait 20 years to do what you knew God wanted you to do? Could you wait 20 years without, without shaking your finger at the heavens and saying, come on, God, what are you doing here? You're God. Make something happen. What, what do you have here? 
The prophets come along. And when, when Darius becomes king, you know what the people said? They've been waiting so long that the people of Israel are actually saying, well, it's not really time to do this yet. They've gotten so accustomed to being blocked from doing the will of God that they now think it's the will of God for them not to do it. And he says, and they say, ah, we don't think it's time. God calls two prophets to talk to them. And the prophets tell them nice, gentle, prophetic kinds of things. You know, prophets are always such sweet guys. You say it's not time to build the house of God, but here you are living in your paneled homes while my temple lies in ruins. You know, really friendly, non-confrontational stuff like that. And they get back to work. But I want to talk to you just for a moment about dealing with disappointment in this, this generation. You're either in it, or you're about to experience it, or you're getting over it. That's just the way it is for all of us. It's either right now going on in your life, disappointed with your kids, Disappointed with your marriage, disappointed with your church, disappointed with your pastor, disappointed with your grandma, disappointed with your mom, disappointed with your dad. It doesn't matter. You're disappointed with something, somewhere, somebody. Disappointed with yourself. Or you're coming out of it. You're like, okay, whew, moving on. Forgiven that person, forgiven myself. I've trusted God with this issue, whatever it is. I put it over there and I've let God take care of it and I've, I'm moving on. Thank you, Lord. I feel good. And you're there feeling good. And some of you don't even know the disappointment that tomorrow has for you. Glad to cheer you up today. First of all, if you're going to deal with this, you have to get some perspective. You have to recognize that, that God is bigger than your idea of how things should go. And that there are lots of people moving in this thing. We talked last, last week about all the moving parts of just the decision to get Israel back to building the temple. All of the people who had to be influenced. All the political authorities that were moving about. That God was moving with and shaping their ideas and thoughts. And the timing of the things that were taking place. All is much bigger than any one person could understand. But the God of the universe understands the whole of it. We only understand it now because we have a historical lens to look back at what was happening there. In the midst of your disappointment, understand that there is some bigger stuff going on than what you're dealing with. There's bigger stuff stuff going on in the universe than just you and I. Get some perspective. Recognize you can step back, look up to the heavens and say, you are God, I am not. You see things I don't understand and so I'm going to trust you even though I'm not happy with the circumstances I'm in. It's a choice. It's a choice to walk in that God-directed way. Number two, pray out your complaints to God. Don't take your complaints to your neighbor. They're just going to go, yeah, yeah, that's terrible. Isn't that awful? If I were you, I'd feel the same way. No help. Feels good, but it's not any help. Pray out your complaints. Look up to the heaven and say, this is horrible and I think it's your fault. It's okay. He's not scared of you. And he's not going to get scared of you. 
It's okay to pray out your complaints and say, Lord, this and this and this should be under your control. You are the God of the universe. We sing songs. You can do anything. Well, do something. Anything. And all you hear is... Refuse to take or place blame. Now I want to draw a a pretty sharp line down this. Admit your part. Okay? But I don't want you to hold on to that as the anchor for the rest of your life. Admitting you've been stupid ought to be pretty much a daily occurrence. Right? Admit your part. Take that to God. Ask His forgiveness and leave it with Him. That's where you ask for forgiveness for yourself and for the person who's harmed you. What the person who's made that, that disappointing, gut-wrenching feel in you, you take them to God and you say, God, it, it's, it's up to you. I lay in with you. I entrust them with you. If you're disappointed in a decision someone else is making, God... You take the direction in their life. You lead them from here. I'm just going to let it go. You and I have to recognize this because you do not want to carry that ache in your heart forward any longer than you have to. Take it to God. Give your complaints to Him. Pray and ask forgiveness for the person who has harmed you and for yourself. Admit your problem. Admit you did it. And give it to Him so that you can move on without the burden of those anchors. And then retell God's story to yourself. You know what the great part of this is? You get to look at what God has done for you thus far and go, okay, I've made messes before and he didn't abandon me. Cool, let's keep going. Retell God's story to yourself. Heed the revelation that is given to you by the prophets and by the scriptures. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Do something, Israel. Dale Carnegie said, Inaction breeds self-doubt and fear. Inaction breeds confidence and courage. I don't usually quote Dale Carnegie, but listen to what the man said. If you're sitting home in your disappointment, that is going to lead you into, I sleep all the time, I feel really discouraged, I'm unhappy, I don't don't know what to do. I know this is going to sound really simplistic, and Dr. Oz would probably be mad at me. But get out of your bed, pull a weed, get a glass of milk, do something. Get up, start moving. Just take one step, one foot in front of the other. Just start. Just start. And then know that the Lord your God takes hold of your right hand and says, do not be afraid. I will help you. Start. Get get going and give him something to help. Sometimes I think we lay in our bed and say, help. And God says, okay, get up and let's go. 
And we go, help. And he goes, no, come on, let's, let's go. And he says, and we say, help. And he says, come on, we've we, we got to be moving for me to help you with something because you've got nothing for me to help you with right now. What do you want me to do, help you sleep? You've been sleeping for 24 hours. Let's go. Let me help you. Let me point you in a direction that will be of service and a blessing to you. Danny Gokey has a song called Tell Your Heart to Beat Again. And this is a line in the song that has just ministered to me. Let every heart break and every scar. Think about the scars in your life. Consider the pains and the struggles and the things you've been trying to avoid looking at that you're avoiding remembering. Look at the scars. Let every heartbreak and every scar be a picture that reminds you who has carried you this far. Let the very things that Satan wants to point out in your life and say, look, you're horrible. God doesn't even want you. Let those be a reminder that he was with you then. And he will walk you on from here. Let those scars be a reminder of the attentive, healing touch of God. The scars. We have to deal with our disappointment. It sits right there. And it clamps in tighter and tighter on our hearts. This song comes out of a story that Danny Goethe tells about it. He says, the, the, he's not the author of this story, he says, of this song. He said, the writer of the song is a pastor. He said, there was a heart surgeon in this pastor's church. And the pastor said, I'd like to see a heart surgery. I, I, I told the doctor once, I want to see a baby born. I almost fainted. Three nurses followed me out of the room. So I don't want to see a heart surgery. This guy apparently made it through. They, he was fascinated. They stopped this person's heart. They took the heart literally out of her, began working on it and sewing stuff and putting pieces and making it better. They put it back in place and before they closed up, they started doing massage and simulation trying to get the heart to start again. Heart wouldn't start. They tried several different things. It wouldn't start. Finally, the doctor, the member of his church, knelt down next to this lady. He got right up next to her ear and he said, Mrs. Johnson, this is your doctor. If you can hear me, Tell your heart to start beating again. And her heart started beating. I don't think that's probably in the manual. (laughs) But it's the root of this song. And I think sometimes we just need to remind ourselves when the weight of those things that are hard for us is weighing on our heart. Okay, just beat again. And again, and again. Danny Goki's song is going to play after I pray. It's one of the best sets of lyrics I think anyone's written in a long time. So just listen to it before you get up. And Bob's going to dismiss you after that song plays. Would you pray with me for a minute, though? Father, it is so easy to let our discouragements and our disappointments become our identity. We choose you as our identity. 
We choose forgiveness as our weapon. We choose prayer as our answer. We choose to echo our complaints through the chambers of heaven. And we ask for your help with our choices. In Jesus' name, amen.
Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we come before you this morning and we just ask that for those of us whose hearts have stopped beating for you, that you will place in our hearts something to get them beating again for you, Lord. Help us to have the strength to make a decision to live a God-directed life. For we know in our hearts that that's the only way that we should be living. And when the pieces break apart during the week, from the knowledge we have of you and what we do for you, help us to put those pieces back together and help our hearts to beat again for you. As we bring this service to a close, Lord, I pray that every heart here will have been touched by what Pastor Walt has brought to us this morning. And we'll make a decision to move forward with you. We'll bring our complaints to you and not to each other. Thank you, Lord, for being such an awesome God, for directing our lives when we let you. Give us the strength to always let you direct our lives in everything that we say and do. I thank you, Lord, for the decision this week to move again forward with our building plans. Give us the strength to not stall again, but to keep moving forward. And be, let this become a reality. We love you and praise you for the awesome God that you are. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you, Pastor Walt, for a great message. We have uh, fellowship classes that are about to start. We have an adult class in the back, uh, younger children in the back, and then to my right, to your left, down this hallway are the youth and um, early teens and kindergartens and so on. And there are several classes in the sanctuary here for adults. Pick one of your choosing and join us as we continue to worship our God. Thank you for coming today.